Today's lesson is ultimately then about worship, and it is the final lesson in the book of Hebrews. Uh, This is the time of year when people start thinking about worship. Uh, It is interesting that you, you get the manger scenes and everybody worship Jesus and Worshiping Jesus kind of becomes this uh, good feeling and typically then turns into worshiping him means going to services, going to a church building, and therefore you have worshiped. One of the things I want us to observe in our, in our final lesson today is that while we can have the tendency to think of worship as sitting in a pew, singing some songs, listening to me yell at you, uh, things like that, that's not how God has defined worship. While coming together and doing these things is a part of worship, that the scriptures picture worship as something far bigger in regards to our lives. Like in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where there the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice the whole of life is supposed to be a spiritual worship to God, that everything we do would be done as if it were to be worshiped before God. If you're in Hebrews chapter 13, you'll notice that while this chapter break is here, this really flows out of what the writer of Hebrews has been doing up to this point, where he has been encouraging them to have an enduring faith, to be able to be strong through difficulties and all of chapter 12 described that and you might recall if you were here last week that how chapter 12 rounded out was a reminder and a warning of the God that we serve because of the the blessings and all that we experience from God he then tells us that we need to then offer before God this acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consumer fire chapter 12 verses 28 and 29 and you have the tendency to leave that off there but chapter 13 then is all about what does that worship look like you have the tendency to look at hebrews chapter 13 and you'll notice that it kind of sounds like random teachings in every sentence but what i want us to observe is that ultimately this is showing how jesus is to be worshiped This is the kind of worship that he desires out of us. And you'll notice as was just read for us a moment ago in those first six verses, what is described for us there is if we are to worship Jesus, then worshiping looks like an exhibition of true love. Notice in the very first sentence of chapter 13 says, let brotherly love continue. If we are the people of God and if we are worshiping him, then there must be a genuine love for one another. How many times the scriptures tell us you cannot hate your brother and say that you love God. You can't say that you are a worshiper of God, that you love God, you love his word and then hate one another. And the first John goes through all of that. 
It is a reminder to us that if we are truly going to worship him, then worship needs to go beyond what happens here in this building. But as we go through our lives and go through the day through Monday all the way to Saturday, that our worship will look like having a love for each other. In fact, I think it is important to emphasize this because there can be such a hypocrisy with that. You know, well, I I love God and then we live our lives with such a self-centered focus. And notice his very first breath after saying, we need to come to God with acceptable worship because our God is a consuming fire is to say, Continue to love each other. Let that brotherly love for one another in the family of Christ continue. And then after saying that, notice the very next sentence is, not only must we love one another, but then we need to love the people we don't know. He says there, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Same idea here is, if we're going to love one another, now you need to also love the world, love people, love those you don't know. And think about how that can translate into your daily behavior and daily life and how you interact with people that you don't know. How you talk to people that are strangers, how you are able to be around them, speak to them, engage them. Some of the simple things I just think of is how often in our world today, and you are walking wherever you are walking, neighborhood, mall, outside, and you encounter a stranger, what do we do? Probably the most popular thing right now is head down and keep walking, engaging your device, headphones, whatever it is. And there is zero interaction with any strangers. We don't want to interact with them. Just leave us alone. We're in our own bubble. We're in our own world. And notice that there's not only then a love for strangers, but notice the picture of even hospitality to strangers that We would do good by them, that we would love them. We would have our eyes up. We would speak to them. We would engage them. We would get to know them. There is a love that is supposed to exist not only to the people that we know, like in this room, but even to the people that we do not know and to do good by others. And and the reminder that he gives seems to reference back to Abraham. Where Abraham has some strangers walk up and little did he know those men were sent by God. And it's so important to keep that in mind is what good you may be doing. Who knows what work the stranger you might be able to have in their lives or what they may be doing for God. And it's so important that we sometimes think outside of our own lives and our own arenas where we're just doing what we're doing. And we get caught up in the day and we do not engage all people and show them love. Remember, Jesus said there is a defining characteristic of how all the world will know that you are his disciples. And it's through loving others that you would love one another, as John 13 says. And so it's critical that as so interested as he speaks of what is acceptable worship and showing this true faith before God, that faith is not something that just simply resides within us and we believe in God, but it has to be displayed in what we do for one another, as well as what we do outside of these walls to those who are strangers. He goes further in verse three and says to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, then those 
those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. We have seen in chapters 10 uh, and 11 that these Christians were suffering, thrown in prison, loss of property. They're enduring great suffering. And he says, also do good for those Christians too. So let brotherly love continue. Love strangers. Love those who are suffering for the cause of Christ. Do good by them. Care for them. Thrown in prison is their present circumstance. That we would not look at those who are suffering and go, well, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to have to roll up my sleeves and help help out that Christian because they're going through so much and at least my life is going fine. It's easy to do that. It's easy to live in such a self-centered, isolated world. And who cares if brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so is suffering for the cause of Christ because they're doing good and trying to be righteous and all that they're going through. I'm doing fine and I'm busy and I've got all my own stuff. He says, no, 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 no. Remember those who are in prison as if you're in prison with them and, and those who are mistreated since you are in the body as well. This imagery of being so connected to one another that we would do good for one another, love one another in that way. Our worship goes further in verse 4. Let the marriage be, uh, be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral. This is a very important picture of what worship will look like to God is that marriage is held in honor. We live in a culture that completely denigrates marriage and it's easy to allow that culture to influence our way of thinking and to think marriage is nothing. Who cares? It's a product of a bygone era of ridiculous Victorian rules or something like that. And here is God saying, no, part of my worship that you can present to me is that you honor marriage, that you uphold it in the right way. Think about how the Apostle Paul described love as being kind and patient and not rude and not resentful and not insisting on its own way. That's supposed to be true in marriage, too. That's part of holding your marriage in honor is having that kind of respect and love, care and concern where it's not about myself, but it is about the other person that we would never speak evil of our spouse or be embarrassing to our spouse, but we would uphold the marriage and uphold our spouse. And notice in particular, he emphasizes that the marriage bed be undefiled, that one of the worst ways that we can destroy marriage And one of the ways we dishonor marriage is through sexual immorality. This is just absolutely foreign to our world today. And I would submit to you, is it any wonder why you see so many marriages destroyed and wrecked and people ruined and catastrophe and wreckage and collateral damage of relationships is because marriage is not held in honor. And that the bed does not remain undefiled. It is so important for us to recognize that though the world says sexual immorality is fine and marriage is antiquated, God says, if you're worshiping me, if you are giving me true worship, you will love your spouse and you will not allow the marriage bed 
to be defiled. It is such an important picture. In fact, it is so important, you will notice at the end of verse 4, that here the writer of Hebrews expresses why this is important. The end of verse 4, he says, For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Is that just broad enough umbrella right there? Did that just capture everything? The adulteress, okay, the married who are not staying within their own marriage bed, and even the sexually immoral, even if you're not married and you're sexually active, that's also judged too. And both are being thrown together and saying, that's not worshiping God. That doesn't honor him, and that doesn't honor your spouse or your future spouse. Don't do that. Worship God. Stay pure before God and before your spouse. Sexual immorality just simply devastates marriages. And my final word to this is just going to say, the unrestrained sexual appetites that we see today is just absolutely destroying marriages on a daily basis. That what is going on in our society of such a supercharged Fulfill your sexual desires atmosphere is wrecking people left and right. And it is why our culture is in the culture that it's in right now and why there's such an upheaval about uh, the kinds of sexual mistreatment that goes on is because we're in a world that says, hey, you just need to fulfill your desires and you get what you want out of that person. And here's God saying, that's destroying people. Worship God and worship him by being honorable in your marriage. Marriage isn't about you. Can I make a whole second sermon? No, I won't do that to you. Marriage isn't about you. It's about the other person. And that's what's being described here. You hold that in honor. You keep that intact. Finally, he says then also in verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Very simple message. Don't love money, love Jesus. How often Jesus would put his worship and love of him in contrast to the love and worship of money. He told parables about that. He said, you can't be devoted to both. You can't love money and love me. You're either going to love one and hate the other, but you're not going to get both. We like to fool ourselves and think, I can love both. Uh, I can love Jesus and love wealth and money. And notice he just lays it out right here. Keep your life free from that. Don't let yourself slip into a loving of money and possessions and wealth and accumulation and stuff because that's stealing your heart away from Jesus. That's not worship of him. And so it's such an important picture that is being presented to us because when we love him and not wealth, look at what happens. In verse 5, he says, you can be content with what you have. Say, well, how am I going to have that contentment? You can be content with what you have because God has made a promise. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Does that sentence sound strange? Contentment is tied to, I will never leave you or forsake you. I would tie suffering 
to I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm going through bad stuff and hardships, but God has said he will never leave me or forsake me. And I hold on to that promise. But notice how he connects that promise is to contentment and says, you know that God will never leave you or forsake you. And that's why you don't have to love money. That's why you don't have to make your life about wealth. That's why you don't have to seek after those things. Because God's not going to leave you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to get you through it. Wealth is not going to be the security that you think it's going to be. That's how verse 6 plays in. The Lord is my helper. Do what you want to me. I've got God on my side. I'll survive thick and thin, rich as poverty. It doesn't matter. I have God and I don't have to seek after those things. As I've said many times, so true of what the Proverbs and the writer of Ecclesiastes says again and again. What happens just when you think you're getting close to your wealth goals? Well, there they go. And, oh, that, that goal line always just kind of jumps a little further out and just a little further out. And you never get there, which is God teaching us something that is vanity. You don't need it. Be content. And I think we all understand that there is something precious about contentment. To just to be able to sit down, you go home today, and just look at all that God has given you. And just be grateful and enjoy what you have. Be amazed at the phone that you have, and yeah, it's a year old, you know. A TV that's not the Q-O-L-E-D-Z, you know, fancy 99-inch, you know. You have nice things. We have clothes that could last probably for weeks before we could have to cycle through again. Food to last months, probably. We have so much to be content with what we have. Look at what God has given you, and what God is saying through that is, You can trust me. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. So worship is loving him, not loving the stuff. Worship is seeking him, not seeking the stuff. All six verses of this opening, you will notice, are just simply saturated with a call to love. Love each other. Love strangers. Love Christians who are suffering. Love your marriage. Love your spouse. Love Jesus don't love money. That's so those first six verses filled with worship is about how you express love and what you love. If you truly worship him, then this is the overflow of love that you will see. So that's number one. Number two, verses seven through 19. This big section is that worship Jesus means that we will hold on to the true teachings that he has given to us. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good or to share with what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who would have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. A bunch of declarations in there, but all of them center upon the idea of how God wants us to offer acceptable worship is about holding on to the teachings that have been delivered to us. In verse 7, he speaks of remembering your leaders. In particular, he says, those who have spoke to you the word of God and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so cling to the stable teachings that have been delivered to you from the word of God. And those spiritual teachers that I think is so powerful are not supposed to simply say what God says. But they are to live what God says so that people can look at their lives and say, those people taught me the word of God. And he says, now consider the outcome of their lives. Look at how they live their lives and imitate their faith. There is no such thing as not practicing what you're teaching. You must do as you teach. And that's what he says here is to be able to have spiritual leaders who are teaching you the word of God, that you not only hear those teachings and hold on to them, but that you would look at the outcome of their life and go, yep, I need to follow that. That's the way to that's the way to go. Those are the right decisions. That is the way to live life. And that's what brings in verse eight. Where it says there, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the tendency to pull that out and go, let's put that on a banner. It stands all by itself, applied to everything. But think about how that ties into what is being said here. I want you to hold on to the teachings of God. Why? Because they don't change. Jesus has not changed. And his teachings have not changed. We live in a culture right now that says we need to bring the Bible and bring Jesus and bring those instructions, update them into the 21st century. And notice God says, no, if you're worshiping me, what we do is we change ourselves to the word of God. He has not changed. It doesn't matter that Jesus lived 2000 years ago. He hasn't changed. Acceptable worship then means holding on to the Word of God and holding on to the teachings that it says. We must not come in and try to change what God has said. Instead, we must change ourselves to match what the Word of God has said. And that's why verse 9, he tells them, it sounds like some of the strange teachings that were going on at that time was stuff about foods 
And notice the picture that's given here. He says, don't be led away by strange, diverse teachings. You know, there's something to be said for as we come into 2020. We have a teaching that comes along and it is so radically different from anything that has ever been seen in the word of God in the past. Worthy of suspicion. (laughs) Okay, well, why are we saying that? Are we trying to change the word of God to fit today? So much of that happens today in an effort to try to validate, justify, and excuse our sinful behaviors. What we will do is try to distort the word of God to update it to say, well, what I'm doing is fine. Yeah, I know it specifically says not to do that right here, but that's not what that means. Jesus has not changed. We are the ones who are supposed to change. I would underscore this by saying, friends, do not look for people to tell you what you want to hear. It's so easy to do that. Especially in a world where there's churches all over the place and teachings all over the internet and things like that. That what you can do is, here is how I want to live my life and I'm going to find somebody who's going to tell me that's okay. Don't do that. Instead, look for those who are teaching the Word of God and worship the Lord by seeking the truth and seeking to do what God wants. Now, You'll notice from verse 10 to verse 14, it seems like a very strange illustration that's going on here that I'd like to clarify. You have this, we have an altar from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood has been brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. Okay, so let's like break that one down for a minute. When the offerings for sin was made, After the animal was killed and the blood was taken, the animal body then would be taken outside of the camp and burned. So that's all that that's trying to remind us of is think back to the law of Moses and what sin offerings looked like. The animal then was taken outside the camp. The reason he wants to remind us of that is verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. That's fascinating. Because the crucifixions that would happen in Jerusalem did not actually happen in the city proper because the Jews thought that was very defiling. So the crosses then would be hung just outside the gates of the city so that you could pass by on your way into the city walls itself and be able to see these ones that are hanging up there for their despicable crimes. So here's this this picture of Jesus being the sin offering, just as in the Old Testament under the law of Moses, the animal then was taken outside the camp. Jesus dies outside of the gate. Now you say, so what? Watch this. Big so what? Verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. In picturing Jesus as this perfect sin sacrifice who dies outside of the city, he's using an imagery here and saying, if you are going to worship Jesus, if you are going to have the faith that he wants you to have, that that means not living in the city, but going outside the city and bearing the same shame and disgrace. 
Now, obviously, he doesn't mean, okay, we all have to move to Loxahatchee and get outside of the city. It's not the idea. But the idea is there is a rejection of the world and a rejection of the culture that I'm not going to be accepted by society and the way they think and the way they behave. I am going to be willing to suffer shame, suffer disgrace, and suffer loss and go to him outside of the city because that's what he endured. You see, the world rejected Jesus. And worshiping Jesus means we will suffer rejection from the world. It is an unavoidable conclusion. Jesus told his disciples that if they reject me, what are they going to do to the disciples? Think they're great? Applaud them for everything they do? No. Therefore, we should absolutely not be surprised at resistance for an expression of our faith in Jesus and for our desire to worship Him. If you bang the drum about Jesus in our culture today, you will receive pushback. That's the air we breathe now. We're just going to have to come to accept it. It's not the 19-whatevers of decades anymore. It's not the world we live in. If you are going to worship Him in the way that it's being described here, the kind of love and the kind of attitude that is being displayed, you are going to have disgrace. You're going to suffer shame. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be the what's the matter with you. You must be all broken in your head. And notice what He just tells us there in in verse 13 is our willingness to go to Him and bear the same reproach. We must be willing to go out to Him and be outside the walls of the city, the walls of the culture, the walls of what the world says is acceptable and unacceptable, and we go, that's fine. Then cast me out because I'm going to worship Him. That's the imagery that's being displayed. And notice the motivation under it is in verses 14 and 15. Because what we are seeking is not this life. We are seeking a lasting, eternal, wonderful city. This is kind of echoing back to chapter 11 of all of the people of faith who were not looking for their applause and looking for receiving commending now in this world. If you seek that now, that will take you away from worshiping Jesus. Instead, we seek the city that is to come. And so that's the picture that is given here, which draws the big thunderous point here in verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. What does that look like? Verse 15 the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do our lips want to say anything about Jesus to the world around us or not? What a picture. Here is the sacrifice that you are offering up to God continually. Acknowledging Him on your lips. He says that's your worship. Your worship is not merely sitting here for an hour. That's not worship. That's part. It's a good thing. 
But the sacrifice that God is desiring is a sacrifice of your lips speaking the things of God. Now, what's our reaction to that? Well, don't you know what's going to happen to me if I do that? Well, that was the prior verse. Go outside the city and bear the reproach and the shame. That's why he just said that a minute ago, because he knows what that means. He knows that living a life on display of Jesus and speaking words about him will get all kinds of resistance. They had received it. That's what chapter 10 described. Why were they in prison? Because they were lawbreakers? Not at all. But because Jesus was on their lips. Because they spoke of things that were true, right, and good. And thus they were suffering for it. Notice how verse 16 is such an important summarization. It almost comes full circle. Verse 16, what does our worship look like? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Is that just not just there's your umbrella right there. What's worship to Jesus? Show love to other people. Show love to other people. Whether you like them or not, whether they're strangers or not, whether they're Christians or not, you show love. You care for people. You do good by people. That is the picture again and again in this chapter. True worship does this. And friends, we are not worshipers of God if we fail in this area. Verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is another, I think, really important message, really important picture, really important teaching. I can tell you when Dan and Emil were the shepherds here some time back, and I got to sit in on what I think were all the meetings that were going on at at that time, I can tell you everything they have ever asked of this group, every decision they have ever made, every phone call they have ever made, every email or text, every word that has ever been said was done with the intention of the good of your spiritual life. And Dan and I still try to do that now. Everything we choose to do or not do is a calculated effort for your spiritual well-being. Everything. 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 And you'll notice that's the picture that's given here in verse 17. They're keeping watch over your souls. I can tell you that we take that responsibility very seriously. Very, very seriously. And it doesn't matter if this is your first time here or you've been here all your life. We care about your soul. It doesn't matter if we barely know you or really know you. We care about your soul. And we're trying to watch over you. But the only authority that we have is the scriptures. And all that we can do then is tell you, here's what the scriptures say. And here is our spiritual understanding that we are imparting to you. We can't make you do anything. 
So I find it so important and so precious, the text says, that you will not lord it over the flock. We're not going to make you do anything. You might wish we could make you all do something. (laughs) We can't make you do anything. We are going to tell you, this is what the Word of God says. And this is how you can follow it. And then we have to leave it at that. And I believe that's why the picture is given here when it says they obey your leaders and submit to them for that they're watching out for your soul. What we are doing is telling you here is what is good for you. And the writer of Hebrews is saying what they're telling you is good for you. It would be of your benefit to do that. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Who does not like that? <laughs> that's an amazing statement that's thrown in there like that. I can't tell you how much of a heart that the both of us have for each and every one of you and for this flock. There's no way to express that in words enough it is what consumes our thinking all the time and that is why you can do what verse 17 says that you would understand that what we are trying to do is for your good and therefore it's of no advantage to you to make it difficult because we're trying to work with you with this common goal of enjoying eternity together. What we do is for your good, and that is our work. And it's our best interest then to do what is for your good. And with this beautiful relationship then, we do what's for your good. You listen to what we say. Everything goes so smoothly. (laughs) And I think that's the why the writer of Hebrews speaks this way. This is such an important picture Let me end this section and then we'll get to the final section that'll be very quick. By just encouraging you and to think about in this subject of holding on to the true teachings. Do not play games with your soul. Do not play games with your soul. Your soul is too important to God and too important to us to play games. Listen to what God is saying. Don't play games with Him. And He knows your heart. He knows your motivation. He knows what you're doing. Don't play games with God. And there should be such an openness and a connection of love to one another that we don't play games with each other. That we care about one another and we're trying to serve one another and help one another. We don't play games and facades and all of that, but that we would truly engage one another with the kind of love and holding to God's teaching that we are seeing in this passage. Final picture, listen to verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from brought, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you hear what he prayed? That God would equip you for every good work. 
that what God is doing is trying to change you and I. I hope in our big scheme of as we've gone through Hebrews for all of 2019 on Sunday mornings, we've spent the whole year here in the book of Hebrews, that one of your big takeaways from this is to see with a greater glory who Jesus is and that what he is doing through your suffering trials and difficulties is building your faith and changing who you are to be more to his glory and goodness, to be transformed into his image. That is what God is doing. And notice how that's such a grand finale to this picture to say, God is equipping you for every good work. He's doing something for you. He is changing who you are. He is transforming you. But will you allow him to do it? Will you allow him to change who you are? Will you let those changes occur? Or will we resist it? He's trying to make us pleasing to him. Chapter 12, without holiness, we're not going to see God. And so there needs to be dramatic changes in who we are if we're going to be able to be with him. We must surrender to those changes that we need to make or ultimately we are resisting God's will and we cannot say that we are worshiping him with any kind of truth or any kind of love. I hope that you can look back on your life because I know I can in mine and see how God through poking and prodding and disturbing your life and giving you trials and making suffering come into your life and giving difficulties and enduring so much that God is trying to equip you for every good work and transform you into what he wants you to be. We have a good, loving God, and that's what he's doing. This is why James can say you can consider trials with joy because God is refining you. He's changing you. He's transforming you. He wants you to be pleasing to him. And that is the ultimate glory that we can be before God. If we're not changing, something's wrong. But I hope you will think about how you, this is one of the greatest displays that God can show to the spiritual realm is to take a bunch of self-centered, self-seeking human beings that every human being is, God-ignoring, God-rejecting, God-rebelling humans, And by displaying so much goodness and love into the world and upon us, change their hearts to be God lovers and God seekers. To change them so much that rather than worshiping themselves and worshiping their own desires, they will come to worship Jesus instead. And not only will they worship Jesus through their mouth, They're going to love others. They're going to love strangers. They're going to love people who are hurting. They're going to love their spouses. They're going to honor their marriages. They're going to hold on to the word of God and never give up. They're going to listen to spiritual direction. 
And they're going to let God mold their lives. That is what all of 13 is about, is just this picture of here is what true worship looks like. Here is what true worship is all about. If we do not see our lives being given to Jesus as a living sacrifice, then I want to give my heart and display this worship to Him, then we just have not seen the love of God. His sacrifice makes us want to worship. And not worship in a way that the world says to worship, but radical transformation. That we love people like other people have never seen. We love God like a people have never seen. Let's pray to God before we're dismissed here. Heavenly Father, these are challenging pictures of worship, and yet they make perfect sense. We pray, Lord, that we would be the different people that you have called us to be, that you would affect our hearts, equip our lives, change our minds, change everything about us so that we would be lovers of you and lovers of others. Lord, it is our prayer that the things that we hold on to in this life, the things that we love that are not from the love of you, that we would get those things out of us. We no longer love money and love self, no longer be self-seeking, no longer seekers of the world's pleasure, but seekers of you. And Lord, we have certainly failed in worshiping you in the picture that we see in this chapter. First, forgive us for how we have failed. Second, Lord, Give us strength and faith to love each other as we ought, to show love to strangers, show them the gospel, show them the good news, to love those who are hurting, to love our marriages, and to love you above all else. Forgive us when that worship does not come to you as it ought. May the meditations of our heart and our words always be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. If you are ready to be a true worshiper of God, then worship is no longer going to be just simply come here, sit in the pew, hi to everybody, how's the weather, and carry on your merry way. But you will truly worship Him truly in spirit and truth because you love Him and you're going to love others and you're going to hold on to the Word of God. We encourage you to make that choice today. We want to help you do that. All of us have failed in that. We're all striving to do better. We want to help you do better too. Won't you come while we stand in the